Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. The 90s. For quite a time. <laughs> quite a time. Everyone knew your name. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Hey everyone, this is Scott Bland, and you're listening to the Nerdcast. And I know what you're wondering. Why am I listening to the Cheers theme? Where's my insane circus music that usually opens the Nerdcast? Well... This week on the Nerdcast, we're digging into a story involving a very familiar, long-running cast of characters. We're going to talk about how an impeachment memo that Hillary Clinton co-authored in 1974, yes, that's right, 1974, when she was working for the House Judiciary Committee during the Nixon impeachment, came back in the 90s as a blueprint for impeaching her husband, and how it's been resurfaced today in conversations by House Democrats to impeach President Donald Trump who, of course, defeated Hillary Clinton in the 2016 general election. Politics. Everyone really does know your name. But first, we've got another story mixing up the personal and political that we're going to dig into this week. A big Politico scoop we're going to dive into with our reporters Natasha Bertrand and Ben Schreckinger about President Donald Trump's Turnberry Resort in Scotland and the Air Force using that resort as a stopping point for lodging for crews making long-haul flights uh, who've stayed there a number of times since Trump became president in 2017. Uh, welcome back. President Trump's business empire is at the center of yet another House investigation. Last week, political reporter Natasha Bertrand joined this show live. Since then, she has added layer upon layer of detail about American service... And the Air Force is internally reviewing travel policies after a crew spent time at the president's Scotland resort, Trump Turnberry while on official business. I own a lot of different places. Soon you'll find Meanwhile, the Air Force says its crews have stayed at the president's Scottish resort up to 40 times since 2015. and that is Joining us now is Natasha Bertrand, national security correspondent for Politico, who broke this story tonight along with Brian Bender. Uh, all right, and we're joined to talk through all this with two Politico reporters who have been all over the story, Natasha Bertrand. Hi, Natasha. Hi. And Ben Schreckinger. Hey, Ben. Hey there. So, Natasha, let's start at the very beginning with this story, uh, you and our colleague Brian Bender broke the story on September 6th that the U.S. military had been stopping over at President Trump's luxury golf res- resort in Scotland, a property that has been losing money but raised the question that the U.S. military might be helping in some small way to keep it afloat and that there was a long-running investigation in a House committee about all this. So to the extent you can, can you just walk us through like how how you broke the story? Yeah, so we had initially reported on Vice President Mike Pence's stay at Dunebeg in Ireland, which is the president's um, Irish resort. And after that, we had someone reach out to us who had read that story and said, well, you know, I have information on a different kind of potential violation here of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, which has to do with the president receiving, you know, money from the federal government or money from foreigners. And He told us that the military had been sending at least one or two air crews to stay at Trump's resort while they are refueling at a nearby airport en route to the Middle East. So we got that tip and we thought it was really unbelievable and 
we went to the Air Force and we went to the House Oversight Committee to ask about it. And the Oversight Committee confirmed to us that they had been investigating that for about probably by about six months at that point because this person who had come forward to us had actually also gone to Congress, was frustrated with the lack of progress Congress was making, mm. saw our story and decided to reach out. So we then got confirmation from the Air Force that this had in fact happened and we published a story and from then on we – we're getting flooded with similar tips from other members of the military, Air Force crews who had also lodged at the resort within the last year. So we were able to publish follow-up stories. And at that point, the oversight committee reached out to the Pentagon again, asking for more information. They still hadn't gotten any explanation for why this was happening, when it started, you know, whether the military thought this could be a violation of some kind. And they finally got an answer, which is that the military has spent about $184,000 at Trump Turnberry just since he was elected and um, has spent – has paid for about the equivalent of 600 – over 600 rooms since August of 2017. Wow. And then there's also – there's a lot tied up also in, in why why they're at this airport to begin with, right? That the, the airport isn't necessarily – that there are – other options if you're – these are long-haul flights to the Middle East, right? And and there are options for U.S. military bases where you could refuel, where the fuel is cheaper than if you're at a commercial airport and that there's, there's not much uh, lending this this airport to, to like con- convenience or anything except that it happens to be convenient to Trump's resort. Right. And it's about 30 miles outside of Trump's resort. It's very integral to Trump Turnberry's survival um, and – you know, the Defense Department actually signed an agreement with Prestwick Airport, the small airport in under the Obama administration in 2016, because they were looking to kind of consolidate their activities over there. And for reasons of convenience more than anything else, they signed this deal with the commercial airport just in case a military base was full at any particular time. So that agreement has been ongoing. And it's not for this particular Air Force crew that reached out to us in for the March trip that first tipped us off to this behavior, they had said that they had never experienced a stop there before. And that lines up actually with what the military told us, which is that they've been using that airport more and more and taking more and more kind of burden off of the U.S. military bases in Europe that they usually land at. But the question remains of why – they need to be staying at Turnberry, which is obviously owned by the president. And if they have concerns about whether or not the hotels that are smaller perhaps and, and cheaper and closer to the airport have room for the military crews that they sp- send there and have to stay overnight, then there's also the other question of, well, why aren't they just sending these large crews to U.S. military bases in Europe where they traditionally have in the past? Right. So it kind of raising a number of second and third follow-up questions in, in a few different directions here. Um, so what, what was the reaction from officials to all this? The House is investigating. The Air Force has opened an internal review. From a different sort of official, you got an angry phone call from the general manager of the of the resort, right? Uh, kind of out of the blue. Yeah. So we he found out that we were doing our jobs and we were reaching out to staffers and former staffers. And, you know, he said, stop bothering them. They wouldn't know anyway whether or not U.S. military um, servicemen had stayed at the property. They don't know what our guests do for a living, which is completely contradicted by what we're told, which is that the service members show up in uniform. So – and the staff actually does, which Ben later discovered, the staff actually does 
know that the military has been staying there. But, you know, he he essentially expressed a a certain degree of loyalty to Trump and his family and said that before Trump bought Turnberry, it was really on its knees financially and suggested that we stop trying to, quote unquote, dig up dirt on the resort, which surprised me because if there's no reason to hide the fact that the military has been staying here and there's nothing wrong with it, then it it kind of is confounding why he wouldn't want to discuss it. Right. So now having gotten this admonition from the general manager of the resort to stop digging around and stop bothering them, Ben Treckinger got on a plane uh, to, to Scotland and and poked around a little bit and came back with this really fun uh, read about just like w- what this place is. That the, I mean, it's a really nice resort that that they're they're putting up these Air Force crews at. Yeah, I don't golf, uh, but if you do and you have a, a lot of money, I, I recommend going out to Turnberry. <laughs> it really is beautiful, uh, stunning. The last time I was there during the campaign, I. Uh, wasn't allowed to set foot on the property because of uh, some disputes with the Trump campaign about our coverage. So it, it was great to actually check the place out. I stayed there for a night. And what did you find out? Nice. Oh, and more importantly, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I discovered that uh, the staff is, in fact, uh, extremely aware of, of the relationship with the military. It's a, it's a big part of the life of the resort. Uh, you know, it's likely that the military is, is their biggest customer. These people will show up late at night in uniform. Uh, they'll make friends with the staff. There are sort of special little goodies that they get, I'm told. Uh, the, the sort of rank and file will get a welcome package in their room that will have things like Scottish shortbread, you know, biscuits, essentially. And you, you came back toting a copy of Trump magazine also from, from the resort. I see that you've, you've brought in with your notes here. Yeah, I don't know if props are allowed in podcasts, but there's a, a big <laughs> – I'll drop it on the table. I don't know if you can hear that. It's a big, glossy magazine. How many pages is it? About 100 pages, but it's thick stock uh, <laughs> and sort of uh, representative of the, the high quality of things at the resort. What was uh, what, what struck you most when, when you were there, obviously, besides the, the obvious, the, the quality and the expense of the, the lodgings? Well, one thing is that people were quite uh, open about the relationship with the military. It's been a big international news story. It's had a whiff of scandal as we've been reporting about it here in Washington. Uh, There is at least the Scotsman, a big newspaper over there, has also been all over this. Um, But out in the Scottish countryside and and at the resort itself, there wasn't a huge amount of awareness that uh, this had been in in the news internationally lately and and people were still, you know, open and and talking about it. So, Ben, how much did it cost uh, to to go there and stay for a night? That's a great question. I I could look up the exact rate. It was something north of 200 pounds, if I recall correctly, um, which would be, you know, at least like $250. But there is, there appears to be a special government rate that these airmen were getting at first, uh, I think we were being told that it was about $130 per night, but uh, based on the most recent documents that the House received this week, uh, it's more like $180, $187, I think, per night that they're paying on average for a room. So that is uh, cheaper than uh, most people uh, could get a room at Turnberry, but it's still you know, a good chunk of change for putting up a, a, an Air Force crew overnight. Yeah, and I guess Ben and, and Natasha, I guess part of the question is also like how much how much that is relative to other options in the area around this airport. Yeah, I mean, especially considering the cost of food at the resort right. and drinks. 
Um, there was a great detail in in your first story about this, about how the, the one of the airmen was struck by the fact that the Air Force per diem wouldn't cover the cost of getting a meal because the, the food was so expensive. Right. And it's an important distinction and one that the Air Force is trying to make but I don't think actually applies, which is they say that the hotel rates themselves are within the per diem that the military allows for the actual room rates themselves. But the complaint that we had heard from Air Force crews was that the, the meals themselves, like a $26 hamburger, is not covered within that daily per diem rate. And Another I'm not thing. sure if that's covered by Politico's daily per <laughs> right. diem rate. Did you did you eat well that you were there, Ben, or did you have to? Pack yeah, snacks? I'm going to have to uh, face the accounting department after this. <laughs> but the the breakfast spread is fantastic. There's like three kinds of smoked salmon. Uh, <laughs> So it was worth it. And Sorry, carry on. <laughs> no, I was just saying that you know these these crewmen usually eat like gas station sandwiches or Subway or you know this is so this for them seemed very extravagant and over the top. Thus, sparking the original complaint, the investigation, and your story. Right. So, Natasha, where where does the story? Go from here. What's what's left to to unravel at this point? There's a lot. I mean, obviously, this this house investigation is ongoing, and they just started getting answers back uh, soon. But there's there's just a ton of loose loose threads here that I'm I'm sure you're very eager to pull on. Yeah. So I think we still want to know who has actually who actually approved the stays at Turnberry. In the first place, whether it was just, you know, the crews kind of booking their own accommodations through the defense travel system or whether it was the Air Mobility Command, which was booking this for them, whether the White House had anything to do with it, whether there was any kind of wink or nod saying, look, you know, if the military is landing at Presswick, they might as well go to my resort type of thing. We just don't know how high this went, which is a big question we still have. Um I think we still want to know precisely what areas of the military have been doing this. So right now we know that it's been the Air Force, but has the Navy been doing it? You know, has other have other um, units been participating in this as well? And I think we also still want a full accounting of the numbers because according to the House Oversight Committee, they've really only gotten about 20 pages of documents and numbers from the Pentagon about this practice and the Pentagon hasn't even told them, you know, how many rooms they had booked total in the last, um, you know, year and a half that 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 this has been happening under Trump. So still a lot of unanswered questions, but I think probably the biggest one is just how high this actually went. Mm-hmm. In terms of the planning and the, like, who, you know, right. where, where, the, where the idea came from in the first place. Right, right. Ben, what, what, are, what are you kind of seeing as, as, as you look at this as, as things you still want to find out as, as this ravels or unravels? Beyond the military, are there other parts of the U.S. government? Are there other, you know, in a, in a big giant bureaucracy, uh, there are a lot of accounts that maybe, uh, if you get a request for documents, can be considered outside of the scope of that. You know, there's mm. there's a lot of cat and mouse that the that federal agencies can play with Congress. Uh, so just sort of getting the fullest possible accounting of of the extent of this relationship, uh, and also the question of whether there are other Trump properties around the world. Uh, that that are seeing U.S. government visitors mm. on a regular basis, mm-hmm. whether I'm in the country or outside the country, in Ireland, Scotland, wherever else. That's right. Well, thank you both for joining up for a few minutes to walk us through it, Natasha. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. And Ben, thank you. Yeah, sure thing. We're going to get right into our second segment, but first, a quick break. Okay, let's be real. There are a lot of daily news podcasts out there these days. 
but none of them are anything like today explained from Box. Every day, host Sean Ramisram and team pick an essential news story that defines our moment. But it's the way they tell the story that really makes the show stand out. Listening to Today Explained is kind of like calling your really smart, friendly friend to help you process the latest breaking news. You'll laugh, you'll cry, your head will spin, but you'll walk away with a real understanding of what's going on. On Friday, September 13th, Vox's Matt Iglesias joined Sean to debrief on the third Democratic debate. Now that we're down to just 10 candidates on stage, this is an episode you won't want to miss. Subscribe to Today Explained for free right now in your favorite podcast app to get this episode automatically and understand the news every damn day. All right. And for the next segment on this week's episode, we are joined by Darren Samuelson, senior White House reporter for Politico, expert in all things Mueller report and impeachment related, and the author of an extremely interesting, compelling history story uh, in Politico this week. Darren, welcome. Thanks for having me back. Tell us about this latest piece you wrote. The title is Hillary Clinton's Zombie Impeachment Memo That Could Help Fell Trump. Yeah, reporter bucket list uh, check mark there with uh, getting the word zombie into a headline. <laughs> I think I made the Walking Dead fan community very happy at least. Hopefully we never have other reasons to put zombies in headlines, but, but, <laughs> but I digress. So uh, tell us about the story. Sure. Well, this is, you know, incredibly the small world that is Washington, how stories kind of come and go and come and go and the same people are kind of central to them, you know, from from decade to decade. And, and here we're talking about Hillary Clinton. Hillary Rodham, to be more specific, 1974. She is a 26-year-old graduate from Yale Law School, and she gets hired to work on the Watergate Committee that uh, is investigating Richard Nixon and impeachment proceedings in the House Judiciary Committee. She gets added to a bipartisan staff, and they get sent off to go uh, research uh, impeachment, for lack of a better term. They are basically looking at something that hasn't been dealt with in the United States history for more than 100 years. And they spend a long period of time, months, I should say, um, in the archives of the Library of Congress researching uh, what the founding fathers were thinking about when they put the impeachment clause into the Constitution. They penned a, uh, a very readable, uh, say, 50, 60-page document if you count the appendices. Um, I highly recommend to anybody who is interested in this stuff. page turner, huh? You know, nerds or even just people who <laughs> want to learn about, uh, you know, how they were thinking about the executive branch of – the government, you know, we, we think about the president all the time, but if you think about why the presidency exists and, you know, the reasons that they thought for removing a president if they did bad things, uh, there are reasons that that is in the Constitution. And Hillary Clinton, Hillary Rodham at the time, along with uh, some other people, including Bill Weld, who um, I'm sure our listeners know quite a bit about these days, back then also an um, aspiring attorney, worked together uh, to research uh, impeachment. And came up not only with the history, which is fascinating, and I'm a history nerd, but uh, and they go back to the 14th century to determine like this is the first time that impeachment was even considered was in the context of the British crown and the British parliament and the parliament saying, hey, we want to uh, remove one of the king's officers. And, and over the course of I think it's four centuries, uh, the Brits were dealing with this exact question and, and it was on the minds of the founding fathers when they were – writing the Constitution when the Constitutional Convention was happening into the point that they were even debating uh, a, an impeachment proceeding uh, at the same time that the Founding Fathers were writing the Constitution, the Constitutional Convention. So it was on their minds. Alexander, ha Alexander Hamilton writes about it in one of the founding – in one of the Federalist Papers. This all goes into this document and then I guess the next most important part to this document is it talks about the criminality question of whether a president or a judge for that matter 
has to commit a crime in order for there to be an impeachable offense. And they come up with an answer that basically, no, a crime does not need to be committed. Uh, that it is more about, uh, and obviously if a crime is committed, that would be an impeachable offense. But there are lesser crimes, I guess, or lesser, um, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors. Is right. the term that we're talking about. In your, in your piece, you mentioned that eventually two of the three articles of impeachment that were, uh, drafted against Nixon did not involve things, you know, in the United States criminal code. They were abuse of power, contempt of Congress, stuff that was not right. in that category. I love the the details in this. Uh, we're going to jump back into that in a second. But first, I just want to back up and say, how did you get interested in this? This is a document, <laughs> right, that ha- has kind of like flowed in and out of the public consciousness a little bit over sure. the past half century. Uh, but then something happened earlier this year that kind of your your reporter ears perked up. Sure. And- <laughs> well, it's a combination of things. Certainly my reporter ears perking up. I wrote at the very beginning of the year in January of 2019, I did a Politico magazine story said the only impeachment guide you'll ever need. It was a pretty quintessential piece that just walked us through where we would be here now 10 months later, nine months later. I've always been in, interested in impeachment. I actually I wrote a story about whether Donald Trump could be impeached in April of 2016 before he was even the Republican nominee. So I've been thinking about this question and and writing about it for a while. Uh, But about two months ago, uh, we got wind of a Hillary Clinton interview that she had done with the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. Secretary Clinton, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. I'm very uh, happy to participate. From last year, but it had quietly sort of appeared on the internet. No one saw it. No one wrote about it. And it was in the context of that interview um, that she talks about the research that she was doing with Bill Weld. She talks about what she came to conclude as to a crime in uh, in impeachable offenses. We were trying to impose an understanding of the law and the history combined with a process that would be viewed as fair, providing due process uh, to the president, if uh, she talked a little bit about her husband's impeachment, it should not be done for political, partisan purposes. Um, so those who uh, did it in the late '90s, those who talk about it now, uh, should go back and and study the painstaking approach that uh, the impeachment inquiry staff took. And we wrote a story about that because she actually does also talk about um, President Trump and urging the current House Judiciary Committee. And this is, again, she does this interview a year ago. But so this was a Republican-controlled committee at that point. It was a Republican-controlled committee, but we were in the throes of the Robert Mueller investigation. Mm-hmm. We were in, in the throes of the Russia uh, probe, which obviously I've been covering as well for the last uh, 55,000 years, it seems like, as well. <laughs> so you know, we wrote about that uh, interview that she gave. And her advice to the House Judiciary Committee where she said, don't grandstand. Restrain yourself from grandstanding and holding news conferences and – Don't hold press conferences. Follow the advice that I gave. This, this goes way beyond uh, whose side is on – you're on or who's on your side. And then it was you know, spinning out of that. We were like, well, where is this memo that she talks about? And a little bit of nexus searching, a little bit of calls you know, to various people. Uh, we quickly found a copy of it. And that's when I, you know, went over to uh, the coffee shop around the corner and, and, you know, started reading, had to read it, you know, three or four or five times to highlight it, to really sort of digest what it was saying and why it was important. And I will say as well, once I started to uh, search on Nexus for citations to this document, that's when I found just a whole bunch of them in the Clinton, Bill Clinton impeachment saga. 
And that ends up being somewhat ironic right there. And because uh, Clinton had been part of the group authoring this memo, kind of unearthing all the the secrets of this lost to history process in in the 70s, fast forward a couple decades, and this thing that she helped write is, is being uh, held up by Republicans as a roadmap for kicking her husband out of office. President Clinton has been impeached. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, like I said, it, it started there with Bob Barr even before the Monica Lewinsky uh, tryst becomes public awareness, public knowledge. And then, you know, leadership in the House Republican Conference. Tom DeLay is citing this memo on the floor as he's whipping votes. The chair of the House Judiciary Subcommittee is citing this memo uh, in the course of the very few uh, Bill Clinton impeachment hearings that actually do happen before they move to impeach Bill Clinton. And and there is this undercurrent of everyone knows that Hillary had worked on this document where the Republicans were throwing this in the face of Hillary Clinton, including Congressman Bob Barr, uh, a Republican from Georgia who was one of the very early uh, flamethrowers against Bill Clinton, even calling for impeachment proceedings nine months, eight months before Monica Lewinsky, that story even breaks in the public consciousness. He's calling for impeachment of Bill Clinton. There was Whitewater. There was all sort. There was other stuff that swirling was, that scandals, was swirling that House Republicans were were feeding on. Ken Starr and before him, Robert Fisk had been on the job for five or six years at that point. So there was a lot of uh, of. Uh, agitation to impeach Bill Clinton, but it wasn't until Monica Lewinsky's stories break. The Monica Lewinsky story breaks and the Ken Starr report becomes very real that the investigation turns toward impeachment. Uh, and it was in that period where, you know, so Bob Barr is the first and he actually writes an, uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying, dear Mrs. Clinton, and sort of thanks her for putting this document together. Now, obviously, she's not the only one who wrote this document. Uh, there were but you're not the first person to have found this document and no. gotten excited about the, the, you know, the prospect been 20 of years. digging into it. Yeah, yeah. it had been 20 years, I think, since people had really you know, been aware of it again. It's fascinating to think of there having been a time when when impeachment wasn't a, a subject that that was thought of as widely understood. That it had been so long since it had even been, you know, considered a mainstream topic uh, for either political party for a particular president, what have you. That that people weren't sure about the mechanics. If it's a good thing or a bad thing, but we live in a time where you know our generation. Um, and the last 40 years of political reporters, uh, 50 years of political reporters have experienced impeachment um, and has been a live wire act from Richard Nixon. Uh, I don't think that there really was much talk of impeachment for Ronald Reagan and Gerald Ford. But, you know, obviously Bill Clinton brings it back in the, in the spotlight in a very different context. And then, you know, we, I remember there was definitely talk of impeachment for George W. Uh, Bush and for Barack Obama, but nothing – ever rose to the level that we have seen here with Donald Trump, which as I mentioned you know, here, I, I was writing about this before he was even the Republican nominee. People were talking about the idea of Donald Trump being impeached given all the things that he was so unconventional during the campaign talking about and the promises that he was making from uh, – you know, one of the things I remember writing about was him hunting down terrorist family members, which seemed like a blatant you know, violation of the Geneva Accords. I mean there were things that people were talking about that Donald Trump, if he had implemented them, his campaign promises, he would face impeachment or at least a wrath of impeachment given you know, if the if the stars align in Congress and the stars are half aligned right now for Congress right. to, to do that. Well, well, take us now to to the present and and what this memo means and sets up for uh, for the president. And we've had a few of our congressional reporters on in recent episodes to talk about where things stand there in terms of House Democrats and their their complicated feelings about impeachment or impeachment investigations or something that might be looking into that but not called that or whatever hoops they happen to be jumping through in a particular week. But how does how does what's in 
this zombie memo <laughs> set up the situation we're in right now? Like, what does it mean for today? I think the the aspect dealing with criminality and and drawing the line, saying, look, a, a criminal episode does not need to be committed in order for impeachment to happen, sets us up perfectly for where we are. We just spent you know, two plus years dealing with Robert Mueller's investigation and whether the president committed obstruction of justice, whether he uh, tampered with witnesses, whether he dangled pardons. And the question was, you know, is the president going to be indicted? Is the president not going to be indicted? Which clearly is a big question. And obviously for Donald Trump, if he's when, when he's no longer president, will be looming over him. But, you know, all of those criminal questions are not the questions that Congress needs to really be thinking about. They need to be thinking about abuse of power, which, again, is not a criminal act. And so they could, you know, they could write probably definition uh, meeting high crimes and misdemeanors articles of impeachment right now on his dangling of the pardons. And, and even if they don't prove that it's a crime in the federal statute, it still rises to the level, you know, again, uh, of what impeachment means. Like Jerry Ford, Abuse of power was something that Clinton got hit on as he well. Was, right? yeah, yeah. Jerry Ford famously during the Richard Nixon impeachment actually famously said like impeachment is what you interpret it to be. And, you know, it's what a majority of the House and what uh, two-thirds of the Senate uh, says it is. And so, you know, that's really the definition of what impeachment is, is whether there's the votes for it ultimately to push someone to convict a president and remove them from office. Remember, we are thinking just about impeachment in the House, which is a very specific thing and it is different than the trial in the Senate, simply impeaching Donald Trump, if the Democrats in the House want to do that and they have the votes to do it, um, you know, they would put Donald Trump in the history books you know, as the, uh, as the third president of the United States along with, uh, with Andrew Johnson and, and Bill Clinton to be impeached, not convicted in the Senate. Right. So you know, as, they're, as they're looking at everything from emoluments and self-dealing, the Turnberry Resort, uh, the idea of hosting the G7 in Doral or the myriad other stories about President Trump and his businesses and his you know, inability to sort of separate himself and enrich himself um, is one avenue to – as we're talking about abuse of power, you think about uh, his uh, slams on the media, his slams on the judiciary, going after the First Amendment. These are all you know, possible articles of impeachment that don't rise to the level of crimes and again – they can look back on this memo, which uh, Zoe Lofgren, who's a senior member of the House Judiciary Committee, um, she posted this thing up on her website uh, right around the time of the Bob Mueller appointment and the James Comey firing in, in 2017 uh, to remind people about it. She was interestingly a staffer for one of the members of the House Judiciary Committee during the Watergate proceedings in 1974. So she specifically remembers this memo in a way that very few other people do. And in fact, during the Clinton, Bill Clinton impeachment, she had posted it on the 1998 version of the internet as well. <laughs> so she is definitely one of the people who is aware of this, maybe one of the, the, the through lines through lines of the story, mm -hmm. who has helped to keep this thing alive. I talked to her for the story. She's not really, in, it's interesting, she's not uh, an impeachment supporter. She is one who just wants us to be aware of what's out there and what are the rules here of the road. And, you know, she's right behind Jerry Nadler, the number two uh, member of the House Judiciary Committee. She almost became the chair. There was a debate between her and, and Nadler to be the chair of the committee. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, she's, again, one who supports the Judiciary Committee in their investigation to determine whether there's going to be impeachment. And I mean, that is where we are right now. And that is what they're doing. They're gathering facts, which is also very, you know, a to some extent, extent duplicative of what the Watergate committee was doing. That was a very specific act that they were focusing on with respect to President Nixon. Um, for Donald Trump, you know, the field is so 
wide and broad in terms of all the things that they could potentially throw at him. Again, I'm not saying that they're going to convict him in the Senate, but I'm saying that, you know, if the Democrats in the House at some point in time down the road want to pull the trigger and impeach him, whether it be uh, during the convention or, you know, right weeks before the presidential election and they decide that politically this is better for their base to do this um, and, you know, put the mark on Donald Trump, maybe they will. Um, you know, maybe they wait until after the election and if Donald Trump is coming back for a second term, we're dealing with this in 2021. So there's a lot to think about here in terms of just how impeachment probably doesn't go away for the next year and, and maybe more. Fascinating. Darren, love a good history story. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us about it. Thanks for having me. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this week's episode. Our producer this week is Annie Reese. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you again next week.